Welcome to the Nixon Now Podcast. I'm Jonathan Mavroidis. This is brought to you by the Nixon Foundation. We're broadcasting from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda, California. You can follow us on Twitter at Nixon Foundation or at nixonfoundation.org. Today we're talking the Nixon tapes again with specific focus on President Nixon's conversations about the Indo-Pakistani War in 1971 and the international and domestic implications of U.S. policy in that conflict. Our guest again is Luke Nichter, professor of history at Texas A&M Central Texas. He's the nation's foremost expert on the Nixon tapes and founder of nixontapes.org. Luke, welcome back. Thanks, Jonathan. It's good to be back. Just to kind of start off, on November 4th, 1971, um, President Nixon met in the Oval Office with the Prime Minister of India, uh, Indira Gandhi. Um, what was their relationship like? Well, in, in a word, word difficult. Uh, this is, um, um, you know, they were, they were each there at a particularly difficult time for the other. I mean, the, the onset of possible war uh, between India and Pakistan. Um, you had India's recent treaty with the Soviet Union. You had Nixon reaching out to China and planning his trip. Um, they would have known each other a long time. Um, Nixon would have known his father, Nehru, the first prime minister of India, um, while he was vice president under Eisenhower. So while it was a, um, you know, a, a really important meeting in this time and place, uh, they would have had a much longer association that led up to it. India has become very um, important to the United States in recent years. Uh, President Obama even hosted his first state dinner with India, uh, Prime Minister Mohammad Singh. Um, during the Nixon era, uh, what was the nature of U.S. relations uh, w- with India? This is the world's largest democracy still, um, which borders communist China and in proximity to uh, Soviet influence in Central Asia. Well, you know, in, in the in the in the Nixon era and even in the few years that that led up to it, uh, it I think it's difficult to find a place in the world um, that has a more complicated relationship uh, with the United States in in and in both directions of the relationship. Um, as you said, in, India was um, the world's largest democracy, um, but also primarily, you know, more importantly, in the Cold War, it was a, you know officially uh, the leader of the non-aligned movement. Uh, most nations during the Cold War either directly or indirectly took leadership from the U.S. or from the Soviet Union. Uh, India was really the one to kind of try a, a third way, um, an independent way, and uh, this this non-aligned movement. It didn't mean that they were actually independent. I think it's a fair argument to say that India, especially uh, say uh, during the Nehru years, uh, probably did lead um, less toward capitalism and more toward the Soviet system. Um, it, but, you know, this was a complicated relationship. Uh, the U.S. tried to maintain relations with both India and its rival, Pakistan, which were kind of separated at birth um, in the midst of war in 1947 when the area became free from, from Britain. Um, and, and, you know, every time the United States did something for India, it had to make sure it did something for Pakistan. Um, without the others seeming like it was, we favored one side or the other. I mean, it was just a, a, a very complicated place, all the more so in the backdrop of the Cold War, um, with you know the other side of the Himalayan mountains being China. Um, it's just it's a it's a very very complicated region, and uh, relations with the U.S. are just as complicated. During the Cold War, though, why wouldn't they seek lar- um, closer relations with the? with the United States, given that the Soviet Union is close by and China's even closer? 
Well, again, you know, this is it's uh, not to not to repeat the fact that it's complicated again. Um, you know, part of the problem we have too is that you know there are we as Americans don't understand you know the other side very much. This was a place that was ten thousand miles away, about as far as you could go, you know, around the other side of the world. Um, and most of these nations, whether China, whether it be Russia, Pakistan, India. Uh, have released very few records at all uh, to illustrate their side of the story here. So we kind of have to study all angles of the side, uh, all, all sides of the story, really, just through the lens of, of the selected number of American records that have been declassified over the years. Uh, but fundamentally, um, uh, India and China were considered rivals. They They were basically at war with each other in 1962, and on the Kennedy tapes, um, you've got India in the Oval Office uh, asking President Kennedy for missiles and radar shields and, and all, really thinking this could be a real war. You've got the India-Pakistan conflict, which is a whole other one, the Hindu-Muslim conflict of two close neighbors and, and family members. You have, uh, you have on the other side, you've got the Russians being closer to the Indians than the Pakistanis. The Russians also a new rivalry emerging between Russia and China. So I mean the the you know in terms of uh, you have a series of counterweights to the other that cuts across to, I mean almost kind of logarithmically longitudinally it's a it's a very complicated sort of sphere of uh, of balancing all these powers. Let's listen to the first audio of August second, nineteen seventy one. Um, this is President Nixon and his national security advisor, Dr. Henry Kissinger, in the Oval Office, um, and they're really this is this is about. Um, a few months before the Indo-Pakistani war um, really uh, breaks out. But let's play the first audio clip. We'll really next year have a record. Every problem we came in with will have been solved, except the Middle East, and that will have been improved. Tell me about Pakistan now. I read the, I know I see now the Beatles are up raising money for it. You know, it's a funny thing, the way we are in the sky. We have a hundred million dollars. It depends for whom are the Beatles raising money for the refugees in India. But in India or in Pakistan? Well, the Indian side of it is economically in good shape. We've given them seven million dollars. More is coming in. And we have, no one knows how they're using the goddamn money because... You're getting into the government. That's yeah. a terrible mistake. Uh, well, they don't let anyone in there. They permit no foreigners yeah, in, into the refugee area. No foreigners at all. Their record is outrageous. Well, then, come, well, what about Pakistan? Well, on the Pakistan side, we have moved in $100 million uh, worth of food, which is in the port. Uh, there is, uh, we've had a task force working on it, which is either in the ports or on the way to the ports. The big problem now is to get it distributed. Uh, the UN has sent in 38 experts. Uh, they're prepared to send in uh, 150 more. Kissinger says at the beginning of this audio um, that um, they'll have every, uh, they'll have a record uh, by next year, 1972. Um, every problem, China, the Soviet Union, and Vietnam, um, except for maybe the Middle East, will have been approved. Um, Nixon then turns the conversation to Pakistan. Uh, why is he so concerned with this 
uh, part of the world at this time um, that doesn't get much treatment in the study of the Nixon's uh, Nixon's foreign policy. Well, I think you know the the special problem of uh, on the Indian subcontinent is isn't like the other problems uh, that you mentioned that they mentioned in the conversation: China, the Soviet Union, or Vietnam, even the Middle East to a degree. Um, you know, there's a tendency, I think, um, an, an inaccurate one at times, not just during the Nixon years, but during other presidencies, during the Cold War, to see every problem through the the as a Cold War problem, meaning it's it's a, a super two at least two superpowers, it's us, it's them, and if only we get down, sit down, and talk, we can we can work this out. The subcontinent is a different matter. I mean, this is a place that. Um, is 7,000 years old, um, has very different past uh, histories than this American sort of Eurocentric understanding of the world. Um, it's also a, a religious problem. It's a great humanitarian and refugee problem, given the incredible population densities uh, in the South Continent. Um, problems of famine and economic and social problems that, that it's, it's difficult, I think, for many Americans or even Westerners to understand. So I think that, that's the first issue, is that I, I think Nixon, Kissinger, and many Americans, I think, saw many problems through this Cold War blinders, that, that I, this is a much more complicated situation. Um, the subcontinent, you know, it, it, during the Nixon years before and since, always seems to be kind of one spark away from the, its next conflict, um, it, as I said, it's a very it's a it's a very distant part of the world for most Americans. It's difficult to understand, um, and I think American leaders, not just Nixon and Kissinger, struggled with, you know, finding constantly finding the right balance as it evolved between giving support to India and Pakistan, and being able to maintain a, a religion a, a relationship with the region but also with each side on its own terms in a way that didn't cause problems with the other. Nixon in this clip, um, Nixon and Kissinger in this clip somewhat humorously talk about the Beatles, at least members of the Beatles. They're referring to uh, Ringo Starr and collaborator uh, Billy Preston, among, among others. Uh, we'll get that to that in a second, but let's listen to the second audio from December 8th, 1971. Uh, this is President Nixon talking with his Attorney General John Mitchell uh, and Dr. Kissinger, uh, in the Oval Office. Second point. The point that I made to him, which I, which, uh, which I, and I had hardened to, uh, 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 there's a totally immoral attitude of our critics here. First, they say, uh, they, they make a point that, that because there's 600 million Indians and only 60,000 West Pakistan, we're on the wrong side. We should be with the 600 million. I said, since when do we determine the morality of our policy on the basis of how many people the country has? I said, the second reason that they're, that they're wrong. They said, then they say, but India is a democratic country. Pakistan is a totalitarian country, a dictatorship. And therefore, India, is, we should be on the side of the dictatorship and the side of the democratic country. And I said, if aggression is engaged in by any country, it's wrong. And in a sense, it's even more wrong for a democratic country to engage in it because democratic countries are held with a higher degree of morality. And I said, the inter international morality will be finished, the United Nations will be finished, if you adopt the principle that because a country is democratic and big, it can do what the hell it pleases. 
Nixon felt the American media and intellectual class disagreed with America's tilt towards Pakistan, as evidence as evident in this um, in this recording. Um, in the early audio, we heard the gripes about uh, celebrities, which which I had mentioned earlier. Um, is Nixon and Kissinger's characterization correct? Well, I mean, to a degree. Um, you know, I, I tend to take a kind of middle road between the, you know, say, the, the memoir accounts written by President Nixon, Henry Kissinger, on the one side, and uh, a, a number of other academic works which are mostly critical of Nixon and Kissinger on the other side. Uh, you know, I think there are kind of two issues here. I think the first one is about optics. I mean, when you have a nation, I mean, India, I think, was successfully able to harness better optics and branding um, in terms of geopolitics at this time. I mean, when you have one nation that calls itself the world's largest democracy, I mean, who could possibly be be against that idea? I mean, India was the the the, na- the, the nation, the land of Mahatma Gandhi. I mean, who could be against that? Um, a long affiliation with the British, uh, colonial, its colonial power. Um, Indian leaders didn't wear military uniforms like Pakistani leaders, uh, the dictators did, who ran Pakistan. And so I think just on the optics alone, it was kind of difficult to be against India. Um, I think, you know, so I think Nixon is talking about this morality issue, but I think what he's really concerned about is that he feels people are siding with India because they think they're siding with peace. Whereas what Nixon is doing is, you know, what what Nixon's frustration is, is that he doesn't feel like he's getting credit for making peace. After all, in his view, he's the one who is trying to make the big peace with China to prevent a third world war, perhaps. And so kind of in the short term, he's not getting credit because he's siding with Pakistan, an ally of China. Um, and in the, you know he feels that he he's really the one making a, a major kind of seismic effort to make peace, and he's not getting credit for that in part because he and the White House so much of this is secretive and it can't be made public, but because the public relations on the Nixon side I think has not been waged as as well as that by the Indians. This conversation about democracy and morality, do you think? Nixon was considered, Nixon and Kissinger were considered realists in foreign policy. Uh, do you think this sheds a light in their overall philosophy in foreign policy? It's an interesting question. You know, uh, there's, there's n- not a lot of times on the tapes where you hear uh, Nixon and Kissinger or uh, probably any realists who spend much time talking about things like morality. Um, you know, so it's, and this is one of the times they do a, a number of places on the tapes. Um, you know, and I wonder whether their concern is really morality or whether it is, as Nixon said, aggression. I mean, that seems to be, I mean, they're, they're using the word morality, but it seems to me that their greater concern is aggression, uh, which is also a term that President Nixon used in that last clip. Um, I think the way that Nixon and Kissinger saw it was India, between India and Pakistan, India is multiples as large as Pakistan. India has the support of the world community. India, despite being, quote, neutral and unaligned, has signed a treaty with the Soviet Union just earlier in the fall, in August of 1971. So, I, and in, in, in American eyes, it's not Pakistan, it's India, who appears to be, you know, the, the, the greater, share more of the guilt in terms of aggression toward the other, 
and in particular, in, I think as Nixon and Kissinger saw it, that this aggression was being assisted by another aggressive power, the Soviet Union. So I think what their concern was is really about aggression. And when they drew up their kind of geopolitical balance sheet, um, while Pakistan also doesn't have a clean record, I think on, on balance it was India who was the greater aggressor, and that is, is kind of the bottom line for the Nixon White House. It's interesting that this all takes place uh, right after Nixon announces um, that he'll be going to China in 1972. Uh, July 15th, Nixon makes the announcement. Um, August, you see um, these celebrities raising money for um, India or the or the or the um, uh, Pakistani refugees that are going into India, and then the war breaks out later uh, that year. Does the do, does the critics? Um, do these critics uh, of uh, U.S. help towards uh, Pakistan um, have anything to do with uh, rapprochement, Pakistan's help with rapprochement toward another totalitarian state, uh, communist China? Well, I, I think there's a circumstantial case to be made about that. You know, I, I mean, the circuit, there seems to be a circumstantial case that, again, India was playing a better public affairs game here than Pakistan was. And now without having, you know, Indian records open on this, there's no way to make the argument that India enlisted the help of the global community, the UN, its agencies, um, and the Beatles, and even celebrities, I mean, to show a certain degree of sophistication here in terms of their public relations effort. And we don't have any records that, that I can point to that says India was doing this and doing it knowingly um, at this time. Uh, but circumstantially, that seems to be what's happening. Uh, in, in, India is playing a very sophisticated game in terms of public relations, um, and uh, Pakistan is, is, you know, is is not. Um, and uh, the U.S. is is slightly bound in its ability to do anything because it's still planning the secret trip to China, um, which, as you point out, I mean, as soon as Nixon announces in the middle of July that he's going to he's going to go to China. It's kind of a kind of bam, 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 rapid succession of um, cascading events in terms of uh, within a month, um, you've got this, this public relations campaign is launched. You have Indira Gandhi um, making a, an earlier trip to see Nixon, an Indian summit in the early fall, right around the time that Indians must have been discussing with the Russians um, the steps that led to this agreement in the middle of August, this Indian... Indo-Soviet uh, Treaty of Friendship and Cooperation, which is announced. Then you have very quickly the, 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 the path to war with Pakistan, um, and all this is going on uh, after uh, Nixon's announcement in July he was going to go to China, and while he's actually planning the trip. So, I mean, and clearly there must be some relationship between these events, but, but um, as a historian, I, I can't point you to records that can prove that. Do you think the tension with India um, brought the Chinese and the United States closer together um, and helped culminate in that trip in 1972? Uh, I mean, if you look at the memcons, the memorandum of conversation, which record the secret talks uh, between Kissinger um, uh, and other Americans and the Chinese while they were planning Nixon's trip, which is still a few months out, I mean, India comes up, you know, here and there. Um, not the way that Taiwan does or Japan does or Vietnam does or Russia. I mean, it's several tiers down in terms of importance. But, I mean, both sides knew that India and China were close to going to war in the early 60s. 
both sides knew there was a to this day there's there's very long rugged disputed borders between these two great asian powers india and china so i mean i think all the cards would have been on the table as far as that goes um whether it played a a real role i mean maybe a minor role in bringing the us and and china closer together but i think at the top of that list has to be russia japan uh, the U.S. role in the Pacific going forward, Vietnam, you know, those, those kinds of concerns. But it probably did play some kind of role. Do you think at all the conflict, um, was it managed at all from the standpoint of summits with the um, the big communist powers, China and the Soviet Union? Well, I mean, again, the, these India does come up. Um, you know, India is a concern for both the Chinese. So, so at this time period... Um, the Soviet Union is a nuclear power. The Chinese are probably a nuclear power. I mean, maybe not a sophisticated one, but I mean, the Soviets kind of helped that program get started in the 50s and even early 60s before the Soviet scientists were kicked out by Mao and, Mao and, and Zhou Enlai out of China. And that really accelerated the, the, the break between um, the Soviet Union and, and China. So, you know, I, I, I'm a little bit of a cynic that any time two great powers who don't otherwise have a reason to cooperate sign arms limitations agreements, that sometimes it has to do with not necessarily either one of those countries, but preventing third countries from expanding their programs. And you can see this going back to 63 with all of a sudden the Soviet willingness to sign the test ban treaty during the Kennedy years. I mean, all of a sudden they come out of nowhere. And even in the Kennedy White House postulates that it's because the Soviet Union's real concern is the Chinese developing their own atomic program. And so even, you know, the U.S. Uh, making this, these agreements with the PRC in 72, with the Moscow summit that spring in 72, signing the SALT-1, um, I wouldn't doubt at all that an agreement like SALT-1 has a heck of a lot to do with concerns, U.S. concerns and Soviet concerns about third parties, whether it be China, whether it be India's program, Pakistan's program, Israel's program, I mean, you've got all these these countries in the region that are armed to the teeth and would have caused anybody concern when you see, again, it's, their whole region is sort of one spark away from a major conflict. Looking at India from a uh, from Nixon's long-term strategic uh, standpoint, much like he thought about uh, China in the long term, um, in October 1967, Nixon wrote his article, Asia After Vietnam, in Foreign Affairs magazine, in which he envisions a future of a dynamically changing Asia. In particular, he says that the United States should, one, continue its aid and support for India's economic object objectives, and two, do its best to persuade the Indian government to shift its means and adjust its institutions so that those objectives can be more quickly and more effectively secured, drawing the lessons not only of the United States, but also of India's more successful neighbors, including Pakistan. He goes on in this article to call India a staggering giant. Um, we talked in an earlier episode about Nixon saying that the U.S. is a Pacific power. Um, what role does India have, you think, in um, in your opinion, in President Nixon's foreign policy vision? It's a it's a it's a big question. Um, you know, my quick takeaway is that you know Indian relations are never detailed. Um, that is, U.S. relations with India never as detailed, never as in the weeds as um, as U.S. relations with say, the Soviet Union or China or Vietnam or European allies. I just think India, you know, even for someone like Nixon, 
who was unusually gifted in foreign policy, it was a kind of unknowable place. Um, I don't think Nixon understood it that well. I don't think many Americans did. You could argue the British, after being there 100 years, didn't understand it that well. It had a history that's so different from our own that I think the points that he makes in 67 in foreign affairs are the right ones to make. Um, I think that's, it, 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 those points articulate the right policy. It articulates um, the balance in U.S. relations uh, that we seek to have between India and Pakistan. Um, but I think ultimately, you know, I, I don't know how much any era, including the Nixon years, really has a relationship with India for India's sake. India seems to be defined by the Cold War. It seems to be defined by uh, its neighbors. You know, I, th- I think American policy is sees uh, Central Asia, South Asia, and even East Asia as a place of counterweights that I think the best we can hope for, because it is such an unknowable place where we have, frankly, a fairly recent history of contact uh, after the British leave, after the end of World War II, when India is in, and South Asia is not even on the list, even the bottom of the list of our highest priorities. I think we see India as a series, as a counterweight surrounded by counterweights. India as a counterweight to Pakistan. India as a counterweight to China. Uh, together, they're probably a counterweight to Japan. Uh, I think keeping the Soviets out of the region is a positive in terms of U.S. interests. So I think India as a counterweight, surrounded by counterweights, is really the overarching strategy because I just don't think we understand it well enough. It's a long history, even to this day, uh, to really get into a lot of the details that matter to India. Getting back to the domestic political implications, we're going to play a clip from uh, December 21st, 1971, uh, toward the end of the year. Um, This is in the Oval Office. This is Richard Nixon, um, the Chief of Staff, Bob Haldeman, and uh, John Ehrlichman, as well as Attorney General uh, John Mitchell.
Gilligan principally mentions two key figures here, two figures here, Navy Yeoman Charles Radford and journalist uh, Jack Anderson. Um, what is he? What are they talking about here? And who who are these? Uh, who are these two men? Well, I, I think this is one of the most fascinating stories uh, of the of the, on the Nixon tapes of the Nixon presidency. I mean, it just has all the ingredients. It has intrigue. It has it has gossip. It has politics. It has leaks to the press. It, it takes place in the, in the major of a significant war between India and Pakistan. Um, while Nixon is very much on edge, uh, wants no surprises on the final weeks and months before his trip to China. Um, so it's just this is just a, and, and this is an issue that we're still learning a lot more about. Just in the last year or two, 2017, 2018, um, on my request, the Nixon Library has opened up new records, including um, Ehrlichman's taped meetings uh, with the people mentioned, uh, Charles Radford, uh, Jack Anderson. Um, so Ehrlichman does a pretty good job of, of introducing these two guys and the issue to Nixon. Um, Ehrlichman in these conversations is kind of, he takes on a different tone than he does in a lot of tapes. He's almost like Nixon's attorney, or he's sort of investigating, and he's kind of presenting his client with the facts so they can decide what to do. And so he's reporting in a very matter-of-fact way. So you have Navy Yeoman Charles Radford, and you have a very well-known journalist, Jack Anderson, who was a kind of a protege of Drew Pearson, kind of in the muckraking format, a columnist, of a very uh, of the Washington merry-go-round, which is often the first thing you turn to each day uh, in the Washington Post and syndicated elsewhere in order to get the gossip around town. Uh, so you know you've got these two figures who are cooperating, um, who are trying to to possibly steal records from the Nixon White House, uh, leak them, uh, pr- publish them to get a better understanding uh, about U.S. foreign policy toward India and Pakistan during this time period. Why did, um, why do you think Roman, Yeoman Radford felt so strong about the Indo-Pakistani issue? And what was the nature of the documents that were leaked? Well, this is, I mean, this is kind of the heart of the matter, is what would motivate this thing from, you know, to happen. Um, and, I don't know any more than than um, what Ehrlichman reports. I mean, there's a there probably is in total, I would guess, about 20 hours of conversations on this subject um, late in '71. So there's a lot of tapes on this, and Nixon himself is involved in, in the vast majority of these conversations. In addition to the investigative work that Ehrlichman's doing on his own, and then reporting back to Nixon in the Oval Office. I mean, as far as we know, uh, what Ehrlichman is able to discover is that Radford had done a uh, uh, a couple of years stint at the U.S. Embassy in India, um, and had presumably uh, become very pro-Indian during his time there. Uh, Ehrlichman hypothesizes that the fact he was Mormon, as was Jack Anderson, um, might have um, uh, made them more cooperative. Um, you know, you know, it's 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 not really sure. I mean, Radford was had family in India. He he had, he um, was close to the you know so I think he kind of had a natural affinity for Indian policy, um, not that he didn't like Pakistan, but just he had spent time had personal connections there that um, uh, that uh, Anderson was able to take advantage of one way or the other. Uh, what, what we find out is that uh, Rad, what Radford had been doing is he had he had gained access to not just 
you know, foreign policy documents on India and Pakistan, but on other uh, Nixon foreign policy issues. And I think here Nixon's mind is very concerned about, especially anything to do with China, uh, being a surprise in the last couple months before his trip. Uh, and so I think it was kind of figuring out what did Radford see, what did he have possession of, what might he have leaked to uh, Anderson, what's been published, what might be published. And so I think they're asking a, a million questions because they're trying to desperately to get information about uh, what happened and what should we expect next. Let's listen to um, another tape from the same um, from the same uh, conversation. Uh, this is um, this is uh, Nixon, Haldeman, Ehrlichman, and the Attorney General John Mitchell as well. Um, and this sort of adds to the intrigue of the Yeoman Radford affair. Henry, it turns up that one of these most important memorandums 
having the weather the hell out of there by way of a signal. Now they could transfer them to Coca-Cola or Indiana or wherever they want to get them along first with this young. And I think the best thing to do is for me, and we'll leave Blair aside for a moment, but for me to sit down with Tom Moore and point out what the scheme is that's been going on. And it's the end of the road. The liaison going back to the Pentagon, they want to make a call them over here. And there's a security quotient going into the NSC, and this all game's over with. Discussed here is the... Um, Joint Chiefs of Staff and a seemingly a seeming conflict conflict between us, the civil and military parts of government. Um, what is what is alleged here? Well, I mean, we've by using these tapes, we've kind of backed into this issue. Um, but what we're talking about is so you know the the principal instrument of foreign policy making of the White House is the National Security Council, and sitting on it. Uh, are representatives of, well, statutory members, but also uh, input uh, from various agencies that have to have input in foreign policy. And so what had started under, as far as I can track back, either the very early Nixon years or even the late Johnson years, LBJ years, is that there in the EOB was an office that acted as a liaison between the NSC and the White House on one side, and the Joint Chiefs on the other. And so that is the office in question that's, the, that's being discussed here. And so in this office, um, previously it had been um, uh, 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 Rembrandt Robinson had ran it, and then Admiral Waylander ran it, and the, but really the day-to-day staff person was this yeoman, Charles Radford. And so this was a, a you know, a, someone who's a yeoman is probably in their, no, no later than late 20s. I mean, someone's very young, very junior. Uh, but yet, it has a, but has access of someone who's extremely senior, in a sense, even more access than the, than Tom Moore, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, than Mel Laird, the Secretary of Defense, um, and so in this liaison office, you know, Radford has basically worked himself into a situation where he is a kind of bottleneck for traffic going from the Joint Chiefs to the White House and back, kind of through his office and through the NSC. And so Radford is seeing um, a lot of the paper that comes out of the NSC. And on top of that, um, because he's cleared to see it, and he's one of the few cleared to see it, he's also been going on um, trips with uh, Al Haig, with Kissinger, uh, to uh, related to Vietnam. Um, the concern is whether it's been China. Um, but he's, he's gone on a lot, and he's been a note-taker, he's been a stenographer, he's been uh, someone who types up documents on the plane, um, you know, he's been, he's gone a lot. He's had a, a really unusual access at a high level on a lot of subjects. And so uh, what is allegedly going on is that he's not only giving some of these documents, which have been purloined or, to use a, a more raw term, stolen in some cases, he's not only giving some of them to Jack Anderson and they're being published in some way, class, highly classified records, but that he's also kind of cutting in the chiefs on the operation. Um, as far as we, as far as I know, uh, a certain, at, le- at least some of these records ended up back in the office of JCS Chairman Moore, who, as far as I know, didn't make any copies, but he did read some of them and then return them because he didn't want to have copies in his own safe and for that to be discovered. And so this, these papers, these White House papers. 
are going all kinds of places, and clearly there's a major security problem. Why would um, why would more? I'm sorry. Why would Radford want to give um, the sort of information to uh, to more? Well, I mean, that's that's I think multifaceted. I mean, if one buys into the argument that. that Radford is sympathetic to India, then a motive could be that he doesn't agree with a foreign policy that seems to favor Pakistan more. Um, A second way to look at it is that, um, and here's, I think, an even bigger problem that that makes this more than just another leak story. Uh, It's more than just um, uh, someone giving unauthorized access to classified information that ends up in the press. This is where the story, I think, takes on a almost unique and much more complicated angle um, that whether the JCS or the Pentagon or the DOD is actually using this access, that this unauthorized access that Radford's given them, to, in effect, kind of spy on the White House. Uh, whether it be kind of learning proposals for troop movements to or from Vietnam. You know, Nixon had started pulling troops out of Vietnam in the summer of 69 and would have basically all of them out within a matter of more months more, whether it would be to pick up inferences on where U.S.-China policy might be leading. Uh, I mean, you can imagine, I mean, what an agency like the Pentagon could learn by picking up um, records of conversations, uh, meetings that are not public, uh, they, they could learn a tremendous amount through the, through this channel, and so obviously would have a reason to keep it going for as long as they as they could. So I, I think there's there's a, a multitude of motives going on here. Was the military more or less aligned with uh, with the policy that was going that was being made in the White House? A lot of it I understand was secret, um, but were they more or less aligned with what the president wanted to do? Well, I think that depends on the issue. I think a, a lot of people in the military um, uh, were were very, very concerned that Nixon was making French friends with uh, communists in China. I think a number of military officials who believed and who didn't want to leave Vietnam, who believed Vietnam was worth fighting for, and a minority of them believed that Vietnam could somehow be won militarily. Um, would have had a problem with pulling troops out and pulling troops out, I mean, basically unilaterally uh, on Nixon's part. I mean, getting something for them along the way, not totally unilaterally, but this was clearly a, um, a the, the U.S. was going to get out one way or the other, no matter what we what we got in return for each withdrawal of troops. So I think I think that on the whole, um, military officials were were on board, but there were differences and on top of that, I mean, the Pentagon is a complicated agency. It always has been. I mean, the idea of you have kind of a civilian leader over military leaders um, is, a, is a very complicated thing to manage. And I think a lot of White Houses struggle to get that balance right. Uh, you've got, you know, a longtime friend of Nixon's, Mel Laird, as Secretary of Defense. You've got very strongly held views of a number of the chiefs and other senior military figures. So I don't even think it's possible to say that there's like one military view about any policy, let alone all the different facets of Nixon foreign policy at this time. This administration, the Nixon administration, is obviously, um, you know, takes a hard stance on um, on leaks by government officials. 
Um, we see today the government um, prosecuting leakers aggressively. Um, Edward Snowden, uh, reality winner, Chelsea Manning. Um, Nixon talks here about prosecuting um, Admiral Moore. Um, why didn't they ultimately decide not to prosecute um, Yeoman Radford um, and uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff? Well, I mean, there's no, to me, there's no smoking gun that answers that question. I, I think um, the, the last audio clip or the last segment we played where Attorney General John Mitchell, again, kind of like Ehrlichman, sort of is acting as, is kind of taking his Attorney General hat off and acting in a sense as kind of Nixon's attorney. Of course, they were law partners together prior to the White House years um, in, in New York City in the 1960s. And I think Nixon, for the most part, takes the advice he's given, um, that the damage has already been done. Um, we can't get that back. Uh, we can put Jack Anderson on notice. We can shut down this liaison office. Um, and the, the, the memorable line from Mitchell is we can transfer Yeoman Radford to Kokomo, Indiana or someplace. And anyone who's driven through the middle of Indiana and seen the truck stops in Kokomo can imagine what it'd be like to have this new assignment there after being in Washington. Um, and I think ultimately I, Nixon's assumption must have been that to the extent that the chiefs were complicit um, and they were certainly to a, at least to a degree. I don't know. We know to what full extent they were that possibly, um, by not starting a war or the war that would be needed to prosecute people, including prosecuting the chairman of the joint chiefs. I mean, imagine this, this is a white house that had already been to high level court battles once this year in 71 over the leaks, uh, related to the Pentagon papers and the freedom of the press issues that went all the way to the Supreme court. I think this is a John Mitchell who's much more cautious. And the cautious advice he's giving to Nixon is if you keep these people right where they're at, you transfer more, you transfer Radford out, you transfer Waylander out, you leave more right where he's at, that going forward he'll probably be on his best behavior because now he knows what you know. And I think that's ultimately the advice that Nixon took. Our guest today is Luke Nichter, professor of history at Texas A&M University, Central Texas. Our topic was the Nixon White House taping system as it pertains to President Nixon's conversations about the Indo-Pakistani War in 1971 and the international and domestic implications of U.S. policy in that conflict. Luke, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Please check back for future podcasts at nixonfoundation.org or on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. This is Jonathan Mavroides and your Melinda. Melinda.